Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Today we remind you, monsters cannot be announced. One cannot say, here are our monsters, without immediately turning the monsters into pets. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we're going to be taking a little bit of a tangent away from our last few episodes where we've been talking about the rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide for 5th Edition D&D. We're going to be talking today about creating your own creatures, your own monsters, using the rules in the 5th Edition Dungeon Master's Guide as a template, and we're going to be, as our example, taking a 3rd Edition monster specifically the Ragamuffin, which is a monster that I absolutely love, and we're going to be translating it from 3rd edition into 5th edition using the rules as laid out in the 5th edition DMG. Now, I see this less as a tangent and more of a deviation because we are really going to be fairly deep into the back of the 5th edition DMG. They do give you a set template and rules on how to create a monster. So instead of creating one from scratch, we are kind of going to use the bones of a pre-existing forgotten one. As Ian said, I do enjoy the Ragamuffin too. It's a fun monster to play with. It didn't port to 5th edition for whatever reason, but it's a good early monster it's kind of niche it's finicky, but it's nothing too dangerous or deadly. You're not going to wipe out a party with it for the most part. It's kind of fun. It's definitely not something your characters are going to see every day. So it definitely has some fun use and it has its role at the table. So for those of you who are not familiar with what a ragamuffin is, ragamuffins are accidentally created constructs. They are created from cast off or lost enchanted items so enchanted clothing or armor or things that get damaged and the magic just sort of starts to go haywire and then it sort of gloms on to other magical auras until it finally gains some slight level of sentience you also see them quite often in the aftermath of battles where a lot of magic was used. So a lot of the residual magical energies can get into the detritus of the battlefield and ragamuffins can spawn from that. The ragamuffin that we're going to be talking about specifically today is what's considered the common ragamuffin, which is a whirlwind of fabric rags. And what it does is it will seek out a living creature and wrap itself around it and then psychically take over the body and use it as a puppet. Right. So to help you visualize this, if you've ever had like, you know, a teenage wizard or maybe the the sorceress bachelor and the room's kind of filthy and dirty and you've got that piled heap of old clothing in the corner of the room and suddenly it gets up and starts moving on its own. Yeah, it's a whole lot of fun to use. I used one in the all-nighter game that I talk about sometimes with James's character, Magnus. It was, you know, a pile of old bedclothes and stuff that was tucked into the corner of this old hunting lodge that they came across that they were planning to spend the night in. They come in, there's nothing amiss in the building, just this pile of old dirty rags in the corner. The sorcerer happened to use detect magic and detected the magical aura of the ragamuffin in the pile but they didn't roll high enough on their arcana check to figure out that it was not just a magic item so the rogue goes over and starts poking at it and the ragamuffin jumps out and latches on and pokes back it was a whole lot of fun i really enjoyed that all right so let's go ahead and get started let's go ahead and dive in sounds great So let's go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about the abilities that the Ragamuffin has in 3.5, because we have to understand what their abilities are a little bit 
if we're going to transfer them across with reasonable accuracy. There are three basic abilities that they have. Improved grab, so they have a bonus to grapple checks. Wrap, so if they are grappling something, they can attempt to wrap it. And then control host, where if they have a creature wrapped, they can attempt to mind control them. Which in the rules specifically states that it functions as the dominate monster spell. Right. So again, these are fairly simple to work with. They're not too bad. I don't think the improved grab really teleported to 5e too terribly well. You don't really see that too much. Wrap, we actually found something, but it came under a different name. So this is some of the challenges, particularly from older versions, is names change or something will be really similar, but not quite the same. So again, that's one of those things that makes porting a monster a little tricky. Or even specific abilities don't make the transition from addition to addition. So like in this case, the improved grab ability, lots of creatures in 3rd edition had an improved grab ability because grappling was a big thing in 3rd edition. And grappling just really isn't a big thing in 5th edition. You can make a build that is designed around grappling for a player character. Usually involves some barbarian, some monk, and the tavern brawler feat. But other than that, you don't really see a whole lot of grappling in 5th edition. Right, those largely became status effect spells, things like Kinder or Immobilize. The other trait that the Ragamuffin has, and this doesn't translate one-to-one but fairly close, is what's called Construct Traits, and we'll touch up on those a bit later, I believe. Yes, yes we will. And the Construct Traits are still there, they're just not called Construct Traits anymore. If you go through the book and you go from one Construct creature to another to another... They all have similar damage immunities, and they all have the same conditional immunities. And that's what the construct traits are. In 3rd edition, it meant a specific hit die, and then specific immunities and specific traits. Like, a construct in 3rd edition was immune to anything that had a fort save, unless that ability specifically could target objects. And this is one of the few times where the instructions and the rules for 5e is actually a little bit more clunky than previous versions. Third edition in this case, again, instead of saying, here's a thing and it has the construct trait, they individually gave each monster that they wanted these traits. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Do we want to bother with reading off ability scores and all that for the ragamuffin, or do we want to just go ahead and start in with step one? In the book. Yeah, let's go ahead and hit these abilities real fast, just as a quick and dirty. Because I think some things, they shouldn't change too much. Real quick, you've got a 17 armor class, you've got 3d10 hit points, you've got a fortitude save of 1, a reflex save of 3, and a will save of 3 as well. Do you want to hit the next stat? Okay, strength 14, dex 15, no con, because constructs in 3rd edition didn't have a con score. 10 int, 15 wisdom, 17 charisma... Now, feats, which were a really big thing in 3rd edition, you do have dodge and stealthy. And for a skill, you had a, a plus 10 to hide and a plus 10 to move silently. And those were primarily your big stats. The other thing to consider was your speed was 30 feet per turn. Right, and it has a fly speed of 30 feet as well. So it can fly. All right, let's go ahead and dive right on in. We've already gotten step one done, the name. It's a ragamuffin. Step two, size. We choose what size it is. That's also already given. This is a medium-sized construct, so our size is medium. Step three is the type. That's the creature type. It's a construct. These first few are really simple to get through. Alignment. I think that this would be considered an unaligned creature. I don't think that many constructs, aside from the sentient ones that come from Mechanus, have 
an actual alignment. No. Now, per third edition, this was always neutral. So that kind of goes with unaligned as well. If you're a true neutral, then you really don't care one way or the other. Right. You have no motivations. You have no moral compass. You're a mindless construct. So ability scores and modifiers. So that's where what we already had in the book is going to come across. So we're going to go ahead and translate across all of our regular abilities. So strength decks, we're going to have to give it a con score. Now with this, I would suggest if you look at the closest port we found or the closest thing similar is the rug of smothering. And Ian was able to find this. This has a con of 10, so it's a plus zero. And again, for a simple construct, mostly made of trash and paper, yeah, a con of 10, so you don't have any negatives, you don't have any positives. I think that's a fairly good middle-of-the-road way to do that. Yeah, I think that that's actually a really good thing to choose. The Rug of Smothering is actually an existing creature that has a decent pool to pull from in terms of abilities to reference for the transition because it is a fairly similar creature. So yeah, we'll probably wind up using this as a rough template, but not quite exact. Yeah, but I want to keep the rest of the stats the same from 3rd edition because they're not really outlandish stats. Because unlike the Rug of Smothering, which it's a very simple reactive sort of thing, this construct has a limited intelligence. It is actively seeking out something to attach itself to. This is kind of like the mental ability of an ooze or even like a mimic to a point where it's a hungry thing looking for a host. It's very parasitic where the Rug of Smothering itself has its own drive and will. It doesn't even have a drive and will. It has a purpose. It is designed for a purpose. It's a tool. Right. Yes, that's a better phrasing for that. So that gives us our ability scores. So our ability scores translating directly across strength 14, dex 15, con 10, intelligence 10, wisdom 15, charisma 17. I'm hesitant on that charisma 17. Well, I believe the charisma actually ties into its mind control ability. Which okay. is needed yeah. because, again, charisma is not just, hey, I'm flashy, I can sing while I'm pretty, I'm a dancing bard. It's, you know, I like to call it the cult of personality. It's the ability to convince people of what you say is right or it's the way things should be. And I think that's actually a really good use of the charisma skill personally. Yeah, because this is its ability to enforce its will on something else. It is its will. It is its force of personality because it is going to forcibly take over the consciousness of whatever it is not even necessarily the consciousness the person that it wraps up could be completely aware of everything but has no control over its motor functions which i think would be absolutely terrifying absolutely yeah this thing sings a fairly wicked siren song like i said i do enjoy this creature all right so moving along to step six expected challenge rating so the challenge rating for this creature in the third edition book is a challenge rating of three. And I'm going to leave it as a CR three for now, just as a quick reference. If you look at the stats based on what you have in the monster stats by challenge rating table on page 274 in the DMG, it's not going to line up real well because it's got a 17 armor class, which would be a CR 10, but it also only has 16 hit points, which is a CR one eighth. Because in 3rd edition especially, you ended up having a lot of creatures that had small hit point pools and big armor classes. Because the power scaling in 3rd edition 
was vastly different to the power scaling in 5th edition. Right. That is definitely something that was a big difference between the two. And so, again, this thing would be hard to hit. You take four or five swings at it, but you connect with it once and you're going to drop it. The Will-O-Wisp in 5th edition is kind of the same. We talked about this in an earlier episode. Something really, really hard to connect with, particularly with all that dodge they have. Yeah, because they have a plus 9 dex mod because they have a 28 dex. But once you connect them, they're kind of made of paper. So one thing that I have found whenever I've been translating creatures from 3rd edition to 5th edition is for starting purposes, go ahead and double the hit points. So in this particular case, we're going to go ahead and double it to 32, which would still put it in the CR 1 8th bracket just as a basic starting point. That seems reasonable. If anything, too, would you drop this AC at all any? You maybe take it down to a 15? Um, No, not with a hit point pool this low. Okay. Because at an AC 17, so a first level fighter who has a 16 strength would have a plus 5 to hit. So they would end up having a... They'd hit on a 12 or higher? They'd hit on a 12 or higher, so it's a 40% chance to hit. But if we double their hit points, they have 32 hit points. If you're attacking with a longsword, so that would be 5 plus 3, 8 damage a hit, that's 4 hits with a longsword. If you have everybody in the party hit it once, it's going to probably be either dead or pretty close to it in a round. And and that seems reasonable. And again, that is a great way to kind of break down to see what your armor and your health pool for any kind of creature that you're going to throw at your party. And that is a good benchmark to understand is that the higher your armor class is, the fewer hit points they need. Because the combination of a high AC and high hit points is really going to make it hard for your party to attack it, especially for these lower CR creatures. Because anything from CR 3 and lower, your party probably doesn't have magic items yet. They probably don't have magic weapons yet, so they're still attacking with basic weapons. And so you're not going to have the big bonuses to your attack rolls. You're not going to have the big bonuses to your damage rolls. It's going to be really hard for them to take down something that has both a high AC and a lot of hit points. So you want to skew it one way or the other. Either have a low AC and a lot of hit points, or a high AC and a few hit points. Actually, at CR3, you're starting to deal with some... Let me rephrase this. At what level do you think you're going to start throwing CR3 creatures at your party? I would imagine somewhere between 3rd and 5th level. I would start throwing these in just for the experience Going through at third level, your party might be finding some magical items. In fact, these CR3s might be some of your first magical item drops, perhaps. Yeah, it's possible. I'm just going through and looking at the CR3 monster list in the DMG. Some of the things that are on here. Grell, the Basilisk, the Mummy, Water Weird, uh, Winter Wolf. Yeah, some of these are actually the Green Hag is a CR3. Yeah, so like I said, these you'd start throwing in about third level. Generally, the rule of thumb I use when I'm drawing up a campaign or scenario is the CR level to the party level is a a good split. And you should probably have, I think it's four or five CR level to your party level. Not quite get them up the next level. There's an XP conversion and I am blanking it on it right now. The basic math, if you want to get real generic about it, is that a CR3 monster should be an equal challenge for four third-level characters. Right. There should be possibly a smattering of magical weapons and items yeah, popping you, you up might, at this point. Yeah, you might have that at this point, yeah. So, But even then, if you have a plus-one longsword as a fighter and you have a 16 strength, 
you're still hitting on an 11 plus. So you have a 50% chance of connecting. That feels pretty good to me. That does feel pretty good. Yeah, that seems fair. It's good coin flip. All right. And so that actually takes us into step seven, where we got a little bit of ahead of ourselves talking about the armor class. It says there's two ways to do it. Either you use the table on page 274, or it says determine an appropriate AC. So alternatively, you can determine it based on the type of armor the monster wears. This particular monster isn't going to be wearing any armor. It's going to be pulling its full armor class off of its dexterity, I think. According to the book, it has a plus five natural armor class. So it has a plus five natural armor, and then it's getting plus two from its decks. So again, if this is made up of trash and heaps, then you probably got some, you know, plates or something kind of a little harder and with everything else. So you've got some chunky stuff in there. Well, I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to just sort of hack through a big pile of rags. Oh, yeah, that can be fairly dead. It, yeah, it's going to give, it's going to thunk. That's the noise it's going to make. It's going to make a thunk. And the sword is just going to get bound up in it, and it's not really going to do a whole lot. So yeah, I can totally see just this swirling mass of rags having that plus five natural AC. Yeah, that seems fair and reasonable. Like you said, that big old bag of rags, or if you've ever removed and thrown all your clothes into a plastic bag just for easy convenience, and then it gets white. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with leaving the AC at 17 with a plus two from its dex mod and then a plus five natural armor. Step eight, and we also got into this a little bit, hit points. So we can either use the table, like it says. So if we were to use the table, a CR3 monster would have between 100 and 115 hit points. I think that's entirely too much for something that has an AC17 to still be considered CR3. The AC is really high and the hit points are really low just because that's the way that third edition was built. And it works for the monsters better that way. And even the ragamuffin, it's a pile of junk and clothing. It's not that vibrant. It doesn't have a whole lot of, what's the word I'm looking for? Flare? No, it has tons of flare. That's all. It, it's nothing but flare. <laughs> it's nothing but flare. Vitality, that's the word. It okay. doesn't have a bunch of vitality. So the table that they provide in the DMG hit dice by size. So as a medium-sized creature, it's supposed to have a D8 hit die by the DMG. I kind of want to leave it as a D10 just to pay homage to the old third edition. It's a construct, so it has a D10 hit die. But we could make it a D8 hit die and just give it a bunch more hit dice. You know what, though? If you actually take this as a port, because you said previously that what you should do from third edition to fifth edition roughly is just to, quote, double the HP of it. So per the monster manual in third edition, it's 3D10, which gives it, you know, the average of 16. If you just made it a straight 3D8, that's 24, and that's pretty close to doubling that 16. No, that's 3D8 if you maxed it. Right, yeah, that's true. Yeah, 3D8 average would be 13. So it would have to be like, see here, for 32, 2D8 would be 9. So that would be 78. 78 would be 31. Yeah, 78 would be 31. You know, you run into that a whole lot where the number of hit dice a creature has are far greater than its challenge rating. So I happen to have the monster manual open right now in front of me. The Rug of Smothering has 6d10 as its hit dice, and it's a CR2. So that does feel right to have about three times more hit dice than your challenge rating. And so 743, that could still work out. That would work. And that Rug of Smothering only has an armor class of 12. 
versus our armor class of 17. So that five extra armor definitely would bump you up that challenge rating. So yeah, again, that does feel it's not a one to one, but the pieces do feel like they fit together. All right. So moving on to step nine, damage vulnerabilities, resistances and immunities. So this is where effective hit points come in. So if you have a creature that has a bunch of resistances, you're effectively doubling its hit points. Because if it's resistant to everything, then every attack against it will have half damage. So I was tempted, and if we leave it at 16 hit points, we could do this. I was tempted to give it resistance to non-magical weapons. I could see that because, I mean, it's largely a magical item. And as a construct, I believe constructs get a lot of resistances to like your piercing and bludgeoning and things like that anyway. So just as the fact that it's a construct and it's going to be getting those stats, I mean, that really does beef up those effective hit points really quick. So let's go ahead and cover the conditional and damage immunities that we're going to have on it first because it's a construct. Just general baseline, constructs are immune to poison. So that means that they're immune to poison damage and they're immune to the poison condition. If we wanted to go off of the Rug of Smothering as our template, it's also immune to psychic damage, which makes sense because it doesn't have a brain. So it doesn't really have anything for the psychic damage to hit. Again, perfectly reasonable. And where the Rug of Smothering is a CR2 monster, I feel pretty confident going ahead and using that whole cloth from there conditional immunities so it's going to be immune to the poison condition as we've already said because it's immune to poison it's going to be immune to the charmed and frightened conditions because it has no emotions it has nothing to charm or be afraid of again if we're going off the rug of smothering it's also going to be immune to blinded deafened paralyzed and petrified right Also, given the construct traits of 3.5, they're immune to necromancy effects. So, I believe Ray of Cold? No, that's not right. No, Chill Touch is what you're thinking of. Chill Touch, that's what I'm going for. Chill Touch wouldn't really have much of an effect on this creature. So, again, those construct traits kind of give it a little extra that you weren't really looking at. So, on that, I'm going to give a little bit of pushback here because there are certain spells, spells like Circle of Death, that deal large amounts of necrotic damage that specify in their spell text that they have no effect on undead and constructs. So that particular immunity has been shifted from the creature archetype to the specific spells that would be affected by that. Possibly. I was constructs just looking at... Constructs are still affected by necrotic damage. Again, looking at the definition from 3.5 of construct immunities. Immunity to all mind effects, charms, compulsions, morale effects, patterns, phantasms. Immunity to disease, death effects, necromancy effects, paralysis, poison, sleep effects, and stunning. Yeah, it's a pretty substantial list. It really is. But the bulk of what is in that list is still applied under the conditional immunities. So I am... Of the opinion that we just go ahead and translate them all directly from the Ruggus Mothering across. I'm okay with that. Okay. Now going to damage resistances. Going back to that. If we wanted to go ahead and do a resistance to non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. Then I would say let's go ahead and go back to the 16 hit points. Go back to the 3d10. Because having that resistance on a CR3 monster where... It's unlikely that all of the party has magic items if any of the party has magic items. So it being a low CR monster 
with a high AC. I don't want to have them have to deal 62 points of effective damage to it in order to kill it. That seems a bit much. It does. And that's why, again, going back, these are things you do have to juggle if you are trying to port a monster or create a monster. You go back. So, again, using that base rule to double the hit points versus giving it its immunities. I'd be more inclined to let it have the immunities because it's more fun to beat up on something versus hitting it once and having it collapse at your feet. Just from a entertaining the player kind of standpoint, though if you just kind of want something that they can tussle with real quick, that's easily a DM call. So the question is, are we throwing that damage resistance on? I kind of want to because if we're talking about a giant sack of wet clothing, if you've ever hit or punched a sack of wet clothing, if you shot an arrow in there, it's not going to pierce terribly well. It's obviously going to not going to slash terribly well. You could bludgeon the crap out of it, sure. I mean, I would, if anything, I would strip the bludgeoning resistance off of it, but it's a construct, so go ahead and keep it in there. Because of the nature of it, because it's just a swirl of cloth, you know, you hit it and it's going to give. So that's what I'm thinking because it's the enchantment on the magical weapon that actually transfers that punch, if you will. Absolutely, yeah. Because, I mean, again, if you kick a bag of clothing, the bag of clothing just don't care. Let's go ahead and keep the hit points down and give it the uh, resistances. Okay, that works for me. And, again, as a DM, you can use that as a description. Personally, as a player, I think hitting something four or five times and, and defeating it feels a lot better than, you know, going up in a puff of smoke. Yeah, so according to the table in the DMG, they have a table here for converting actual hit points to effective hit points. And they give multipliers. And so the expected challenge rating, CR 1 to 4, gets a times 2 hit point multiplier for resistances. So this would have an effective hit points of 32, like we were talking about. So you end up still getting that bigger chunk of hit points effectively without actually giving them more hit points. Moving on to step 11, damage. There's another column in the table on page 274 for average damage per round that this creature is going to deal, that you're going to be incorporating into your final challenge rating calculations. The damage dealt by the Ragamuffin in its current state in 3rd edition is... uh, It's a slam damage. It has a plus 4. It has a plus 4. Ah, there it is. So it's a 1d6 plus 3 So that would be an average damage of 7 damage per round. So based off of that table, that puts it at a CR 1 half. Yeah, this one's not going to hit terribly hard. Your attack bonus translates fairly well between the two. Both have a plus 4 to their attack. But the damage per round really doesn't. The thing about the Ragamuffin is it's not intended to be a big damage dealer. It's not. And I was going to say that the damage that Ragamuffin's going to deal isn't necessarily the ragamuffin itself slamming your characters, which can happen. But if the ragamuffin succeeds on that wrap, half any damage dealt to it then goes to the the character it's wrapped. And so that's where a large amount of your damage is probably going to come from. Right. And so we're going to get into that here in a little bit. So I'm okay with leaving that slam attack being a 1d6 plus strength. So it's actually going to be a 1d6 plus 2. Plus your proficiency. That's for to hit. So you're going to end up having a plus four to hit and then a 1d6 plus two damage. Okay, yeah, that's correct. And again, so 1d6 plus three, again, that translates pretty close. Yeah, and it's going to be bludgeoning damage. Now, basing off of the wrap ability, the wrap ability for the ragamuffin allows it to smother, which is going to be a special attack 
which actually that's going to be step 13, so let's skip over that. So skipping on to step 12, save DCs, it is going to have a mind control effect. So this spell save DC on this one, I think we were talking, is going to be charisma based. That's why it's got a 17 in charisma. That's correct. So that would make the spell save DC a 13. It would be 8 plus your proficiency, which is going to be a plus 2 at this particular level, and then plus 3 for your charisma modifier. So it's a DC 13 for all of its saves. I think it had a DC 14 for its saves in 3rd edition, but your save DCs were a whole lot higher in 3rd edition than they are in 5th edition because you didn't have the bounded accuracy rules. So that is something that, again, is not going to translate across 1 to 1. Moving on... Step 13, special traits, actions, and reactions. So the actions that it has, if it hits with its slam, it gets to attempt to grapple as a bonus action. If it's grappled with a creature as an action, it can attempt to wrap them. And then if it's wrapped as an action, it can attempt to mind control. So it does take three turns for it to get all the way through everything. It takes some time. Now, again, particularly with 3rd edition, some of these can be harder to translate because... Third edition was just feats on top of feats on top of feats. And fifth edition really paired those feats back quite a bit, so they are not near as common. So things like improved grab or grapple or things like that aren't traits that always pop up quite the same. So again, those are harder to kind of translate, but then that's a quick way when you start dealing with these special traits and actions are a good way to kind of fudge those lines a bit. And so this is one where I'm going to... There are abilities, I think the Dire Wolf has an ability like this where if it successfully hits on a bite attack, it can initiate a grapple as a bonus action. So there is a mechanic in the game for if an attack hits, then you can grapple as a bonus action. And I'm almost wanting to give them some sort of a bonus on that. Just They to... should, because that's what the improved grab was, was a bonus to their grapple check. So... What would you say that if they successfully hit on a slam attack, then they get advantage on the grapple check? I would say advantage or double proficiency, give them expertise, as it were. I think advantage would probably be easier overall, but getting them expertise, if you wanted to somehow ramp this up from, you know, a basic CR3 and level this thing up would be easier to translate that way. Right, but I'm thinking because that way it adds a little bit to the excitement factor of the monster because while it's grappling you can still attack it normally so i'm leaning towards giving it advantage on the grapple if it hits or maybe i like that because that advantage basically winds up to a plus five expertise would only be a plus four so i think that's one of the ways to kind of deal with things too is to figure out how much bonus you're going to get so i think that plus five probably works better overall so what i'm thinking actually is If they attempt to grapple without attacking, they get advantage. But if they attack first, they don't. So it plays into that, is it going to attack and then try and grapple? Or is it just going to use its action to full-on try and grapple? I don't know, because, I mean, basically its attacks are going to be, obviously, they physically have to hit. Right, but... but Grapple has to hit, too. Think of it this way. Think of it in the concept of, like, a street fighter. Someone who's actually, you know, bare-knuckle fist-fighting. Is it going to strike or is it going to grab? Because it's a different action. It's a different movement to punch somebody than it is to go in and try and grab somebody. 
Right. And that is one way to see it. The way I always saw it was kind of hitting with a tentacle. So it's attacking the hit. And as soon as it hits, it immediately kind of slurps in because now it has contact. So it's going to try to grab. But what I'm getting at is also from a balance aspect, but coming in and you hit it, if you're hitting it for the sake of dealing damage to it, it's going to have a little bit of recoil. There's going to be some inertia going on there. Whereas if you're going in for specifically a grapple, you're going in, you're going around it. So that way, whenever you come in, you can wrap it easier. You know, you're going around enveloping it and then coming in. Whereas if you're just hitting it, you're just going to aim for the easiest part to hit. Yeah, I can see that. And that's also going to add a little bit of strategy to it because you can attack and try and hit and then, you know, initiate a grapple as a bonus action if you hit. Or you can just use your full action, not deal any damage, and get advantage on that grapple check. I'm trying to look up to see what the grapple rules are in 5e because I know they changed them up a little bit. Grapple rules in 5e are you use your action to make a strength athletics check against the target, which has to make a strength athletics check to resist. It's an opposed strength athletics check. And then once a creature has been grappled, the creature that has been grappled can either make a strength athletics or a dexterity acrobatics check to break the grapple. And with a strength 14? Well, it's going to get proficiency with athletics. So it's going to get a plus four to its grapple, which is the same right. that it would get in third edition. It get that improved grab ability, so it would get a plus four. So breaking back in, looking about how that breaks up and is different. Yeah, I think you make a good case for striking versus, you know, if you just take a full turn to grapple and getting that advantage. Because obviously a ragamuffin's probably not going to want to go for the barbarian, but if it does with advantage, that definitely gives it a little bit extra wiggle room to work with. Absolutely. So I think that's workable. And again, reasonably lore-wise, it seems to fit, which are important things whenever you're creating anything. Obviously, you have to be able to justify it and say, well, it's because of this. So we're going to give it, we can even call it improved grab, where if it uses its action to initiate a grapple, it gets advantage on the strength athletics check to initiate a grapple. Yeah, I'm great with that. And then as part of the special flavor text on the slam attack, if it connects with the slam attack, it can initiate a grapple not with advantage as a bonus action. And so once it's grappled, then we have its wrap ability. So it's going to be another successful grapple check. So it would have to make another grapple a check. I think this one should also be at advantage because it's yeah, cause already it won't be attacking. Yeah, so all of its grapple checks, if it's using its action to grapple are going to be at advantage. So if it wraps the creature, that's when we would go in with the damage transfer ability that the Rugga Smothering has. And it's also got a similar rider on the wrap ability in 3rd edition, which is while it is wrapped on a creature, damage dealt to the Ragamuffin transfers half of the damage to the creature that it's wrapped. So if you're attacking Bob the Gnome, who's wrapped up with a ragamuffin, and you deal eight points to the ragamuffin, the ragamuffin takes four points, Bob the Gnome takes four points. And again, that's what we were talking about earlier, that the ragamuffin does a bit of sneaky damage that you don't expect it to. And that's one of the reasons why we were okay with its lower attack die, as it were. And then the ragamuffin specifically has a smother ability in 3rd edition. So while it is wrapped, it automatically deals smothering damage every turn until the target hits zero hit points. Again, the Rugged Smothering has a similar effect 
So the text for the rug of smothering is, Until this grapple ends, the target is restrained, blinded, and at risk of suffocating, and the rug can't smother another target. In addition, at the start of each of the target's turns, the target takes 10, 2d6 plus 3, bludgeoning damage. That seems a little much to me, but actually, you know what? Not really, because it is a CR2 monster that's dealing that 10 damage around. Right, and again, that's that damage that you're not expecting up front. It's not hitting you hard, but if it gets you... It, it gets you. Right, it's very much like a constrictor snake at that point. You know, there's not a whole lot in the way of teeth, but it's going to love you like the boa loves the bunny. It's going to give a big old hug. Pet him and squeeze him and name him George and treat him like my very, very own. And then the last ability that it has is called Control Host. So once it's wrapped around a creature, it can attempt to dominate the creature. So it would be the, I would say, just go ahead and make it the Dominate Person spell. Yeah. For simplicity, because while Dominate Monster does exist, I think it's a 7th level spell now. It's a pretty high level spell at this point. So, And Dominate Person, because it's limited to humanoids, is a much lower spell level. So I would say go ahead and make it, you have to succeed on a DC 13 wisdom save against its dominate effect. If you fail, then it has control of you. Dance, my puppets, dance. And so that does all of that. So next up is step 14 speed. It's got a speed of 30 feet in third edition. I'm good with leaving it at 30 feet. Yeah, speed generally translates one to one. It also has a fly speed of 30 feet. And the DMG specifically says, increase the monster's effective armor class by two if it can fly and deal damage at range. And if its expected challenge rating is 10 or lower. So that will help pad that AC 17. If anything, I would probably bump that to AC 18 because, again, it's got the five natural armor. It's got two because of its dex. This is going to help bump up its effective challenge rating to hopefully hit three. Gotcha, okay. Because right now, the only thing that's substantially higher than three is its armor class. It's a CR 10 armor class and CR 1 quarter, 1 eighth, everything else so far. So that's helping pull those two extremes together. Saving throw bonuses. We're going to have to figure out what saving throws this thing is proficient with. Well, going through, if you look at the Monster Manual in 3.5, you can kind of get a clue. It saved. It was a plus one to fortitude and a plus three to reflex and will. That would be dex and wisdom. Right. And so that plus two, I, that's a really easy way to, oh, look, fortitude's one, reflex of plus two, plus two. So that gives you its saving throw proficiencies real quick. I think its proficient saving throws will be dexterity and wisdom i think those are fairly standard it makes sense it makes obviously sense. it's not going to have intelligence because it doesn't have a brain right. again charisma or wisdom because it's using a mind control effect obviously it's going to move about it can fly so it obviously it has some dexterity right so i'm perfectly fine with leaving it as a dex and wisdom as their proficient saving throws so it would end up getting a plus four on its dex saves and a plus four on its wisdom saves because it's getting to add its plus two proficiency bonus to this that brings us to step 16, which is final challenge rating. So this is the point where we go back to that table on page 274 to figure out what our actual final challenge rating for this creature is going to be. This tends not to be worded the best. This can get a little tricky, but we're going to go ahead and muddle our way through. Right. So for starters, what you end up doing is you calculate your defensive challenge rating, and then you calculate your offensive challenge rating. And then you average the two together. So the defensive challenge rating, you start with the hit points column in the table. This particular creature has a 16 hit points on average. 
So that puts it firmly into CR 1 8th, which is 7 to 35 hit points. So we're looking a little squishy right now. We are definitely looking a little squishy right now, but we have to remember we have a damage resistance and we have a couple of damage immunities, which is going to effectively increase our health pool. So we have damage resistance to non-magical weapons. We have damage immunity to poison and psychic. So effectively, a damage resistance is a doubling and... Uh, damage immunity is doubling again. So we're going to call this, we're going to just call this a times eight for argument's sake. And that would be 16 times eight is 128, I think, is the math we did. Yeah, I believe that's correct. So 128, which would then make it a CR4. And now we're sounding a little bit closer to what we were aiming for. We are definitely sounding closer to what we're aiming for. Now we have to go to the armor class column. So the armor class four. A CR4 monster is 14. We have an AC of 17. And it says that if the AC is more than two points higher than what the suggested is, you bump up your challenge rating one point per two points of additional AC. So suggested 14, actual 17, bumps up one. So our defensive challenge rating ends up being a five. So going to the offensive side, average damage per round is where you start with this. Our slam attack is 1d6 plus 2, so that is an average damage of 6 damage per round. The smother effect, which we're going to be pulling from the rug of smothering, deals 10 damage around on average, but you can't use it every single round because it takes at least one round to set up. So I think we just go ahead and... It takes three rounds to set up because you have to hit our grapple. You have to succeed another grapple. And then the next round, you can actually use the smother ability. No, because the smother damage happens on the creature that it's smothering's turn. So once it's got the wrap going, it's going to start dealing damage on that okay. creature's turn. So effectively, it's going to be halved. We can say we knock a third off of it because if it goes two rounds. So that would also be seven Six to seven, so it's still in the same ballpark for the average damage. So we'll just call it six to seven. The range given on the chart is six to eight. So that would be for a CR one half creature. Then you adjust it up or down based on its attack bonus. Its attack bonus is a plus four. The suggested is a plus three, so it doesn't have a difference of two or more. So it doesn't change based on the attack bonus. Its save DC is 13. The recommended is 13 for this. So its offensive challenge rating is going to stay as a one half. Now for your final challenge rating, you take our defensive challenge rating, which would be five. And then your offensive, which is one half. You average those two together and you end up getting a CR two and a half, which rounds up to a CR three. So three is our effective actual final challenge rating for this particular creature, which translates almost perfectly across. So that gives us our challenge rating. So again, it's a bit finicky, it's a bit wonky, but we've got our challenge rating pretty much right where we want it. So the process does work. It does. Now there's a couple other small points of flavor text after when you're creating this monster or transporting it over. So next up would be skill bonuses. What skills is it proficient in? This one is definitely going to be proficient with athletics because that's what it's going to be using for grapple. It's going to be proficient with stealth because it hides and ambushes. Absolutely. Like I said, acrobatics, stealth makes perfect sense. Yeah, athletics and stealth. Athletics and stealth, yeah. Those both make perfect sense. And it being a CR3 creature, 
I don't think it needs anything else. No, I think that really kind of covers what it's going to do. Right. So, there we go for that. Step 18, condition immunities. We've already talked about that. We're just going to use all of the ones from the Ruggish Smothering because it is a very similar creature that does a very similar thing. And it's also a construct that also has a D10 hit die (laughs) and does all of these other things. So, I feel that that's a pretty easy one. Senses. um, Oh, it's going to get your favorite thing in the whole wide world. So, in 3rd edition, it had Dark Vision. I kind of want to give it Blindsight instead, because it's not really seeing, it's sensing. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. You know, it says here, even on Blindsight, if the monster is naturally blind, it has a parenthetical note to this effect indicating the radius of its Blindsight or a maximum range of its perception. It doesn't have eyes. I'm great with Blindsight. Okay, so we're going to change Dark Vision to Blindsight. So that way, even throwing up a Magical Darkness is not going to save you. There is no salvation from the rag monster. (laughs) And then languages, the final thing. It doesn't have a mouth. It doesn't really have a true sentience. It doesn't have a language. Its language is wet rag. Its language is splap. Now, telepathy. I think... Oh, I don't know. Because if it controls a creature, obviously there's going to be some telepathy. I would say telepathy with any creature that it's in physical contact with. Telepathy with any creature that it is dominating. And it would be able to communicate using the dominated creature and whatever languages it knows. I kind of envision, remember in the old movie Independence Day? Yes. When the alien grabs a hold of, not Data, but Brett Spinner? Yeah. (laughs) And they could talk through him. That's kind of what I see with this. That is a perfect frame of reference. So, there we have it. And now we have a 5e creature. And now we have a 5e ragamuffin. So that is totally awesome. I am really happy about that. It took a whole lot longer than I thought it would, but hey, we've got it. And uh, I think what I'm going to try and do is go ahead and translate the rest of the ragamuffins, because there are four in total, translate the rest of them and write them all up together in one document for the Friday write-up. Okay, sounds great. So I think that does it. I think that gives us a ragamuffin to play with in 5th edition. It really does. The rules the DMG are a little bit clunky. We're going to try to get them uh, streamlined a bit for you with Ian's write-up that you can always find on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. So find us there under Common Taste. Under Common Taste, Instagram, and Facebook at UCT Homebrew on Twitter. I am still doing our Shakespeare and Insult inspired RP prompts six days a week. So come on over and check those out if you use them and have something you want to share with us or if you have ideas for something that you want to hear on the show, go ahead and send us a DM through Twitter or send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear what you guys have got going on. As always, you can find our podcast wherever you find your favorite podcast. We're on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Amazon as well. As always, give us a rating and leave us some comments. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you again for joining us and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. 
Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.